Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, as we hear your word now, you would remind us of what's truly important and move us in that direction. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, many of us would have watched the coronation of King Charles III last weekend. Uh, some of you might have watched every minute of that event. Uh, others might have just dipped in and had a look here and there. Uh, I got home from something at about nine o'clock, so I saw the bit uh, where Charles was sitting on that ancient throne, uh, being given various shiny things to hold and to wear, um, orbs and scepters and swords and spurs and bracelets and, and of course, the crown. And um, Charles was sitting there, um, the commentator, we had the ABC version on, uh, was uh, speaking in a monotone, just describing what was happening, and now the da-da-da. Um, the churchmen around Charles were just standing there expressionless, and Charles himself was sitting on the throne looking totally almost bored, you could say. But, of course, the shiny things that were being presented to him um, were the crown jewels. So St Edward's crown was put on his head, made in 1661, 2.2 kilos of solid gold, uh, encrusted with rubies and amethysts and sapphires. Uh, at some point, he swapped it for the smaller crown, the uh, imperial state crown. has 2,800 diamonds on it, um, including one enormous famous diamond and a famous ruby called the Black Prince's Ruby, um, and sapphires and emeralds and pearls. And the scepter, one of the scepters he was holding with the cross on the top, is also from 1661, solid gold rod. Um, has a huge diamond on it called the Star of Africa, another famous diamond, and all these other things which are ancient and made of real gold and covered in real precious gems. Um, when I got engaged to be married, I thought it was a big deal that I bought my wife an engagement ring with a diamond about that big. Um, but, of course, those things would have been falling off uh, King Charles as he was sitting there on his, on his throne and he wouldn't have batted an eyelid. No one wants to say how, um, how much the crown jewels are actually worth, but uh, Charles was wearing or holding perhaps billions of dollars of treasure by the end of that ceremony. And that's no exaggeration. Uh, and everybody just looked unenthusiastic, don't you think? Uh, amazing. Well, we are currently doing a short series on the authority of the Bible at the moment. We've done a couple of weeks. And I hope the first two weeks in this series have helped you to appreciate <clears throat> the, the priceless treasure that we have been given in the Bible. Uh, it is God's word. And so it is uniquely trustworthy, it's uniquely Christ-centred, it is God-breathed, and it is sufficient for salvation and relationship with God. God has given this to us. Um, furthermore, it has been formed and it has been passed down to, uh, to us through the witness of God's people through hundreds of generations. And as we hold it in our hands and recognise it as God's word, we take our place in the line of God's people as heirs of the truth and members of the Holy Catholic Church, as we say in the Creed, small c Catholic, not Roman Catholic. Um, and so amidst all the muck and the dross and the darkness of life in this world, we have been given the Bible, which is a shining treasure, the ultimate treasure, the Word of God. So we really ought to learn how to treasure it, um, but we're also called upon to defend it. Uh, and every Christian needs to take their part in the defence of the Bible, which is our topic today. Uh, we're mostly going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 4, but I'll also refer to the reading from Jude. Uh, so if you'd like to keep a finger in each, 
and an eye on the outline, the very brief outline, then that might help you too. So firstly, I want to note that both of these passages alert us to a continual threat. Uh, the truth of the gospel, uh, which goes hand in hand with the authority of the Bible, is under threat. And that's maybe no news to you, but it has always been so. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, earlier in this letter, Paul urged Timothy, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. What is that good deposit? It's the truth about Jesus Christ. It's the teaching that the apostles uh, gave and was preserved for us in the Bible. And 2 Timothy is full of warnings against threats to that message, uh, to that deposit which we've been entrusted to, to keep and to guard. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 3, um, as um, Louise read, the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Paul says a time will come, uh, and in fact we know that those times come repeatedly and they come often. People will not put up with sound doctrine. So people will not tolerate what is true and what's solid and what's good, and they'll prefer other things instead. And we might ask, why would people not put up with sound doctrine? Uh, why would they choose myths over truth that is solidly grounded in God's revelation? Why, why would I say, oh, I think I'll believe in that instead when I have sound doctrine presented to me? Um, well, Paul speaks of itching ears. So people have an itch. And uh, it's a vivid description, isn't it? Um, we know what it's like to have an itch. If you've got an itch right now, say in your hair or something, it's kind of hard to ignore and you're feeling that you're itchy and you can't concentrate on anything else because you have to scratch that itch and it's all consuming and you have to do it. Uh, well, something makes people intolerant of sound doctrine because they itch for something else. They want something, as Paul says, that will suit their own desires. Uh, after all, what's good for us isn't always what we desire. Sound doctrine does not always deliver on our desires. I don't always feel like forgiving my enemies. Um, I don't always feel like being faithful to my wife. I don't always feel like controlling my temper. I don't always feel like admitting that I'm a Christian to people who are going to dislike me for it. I don't always feel like accepting what other people tell me is the truth because I'd rather work it out for myself because I'm quite a proud person. I have lots of desires. Sound doctrine doesn't always tell us what we feel like hearing. Uh, it doesn't suit our desires some of the time. However, what if I can find teachers who will scratch my itches and justify whatever I want to do? What if I can find somebody who'll stand up the front of my church and make it sound enlightened and spiritual and pious to run after what I feel like? And what if they empower me and affirm me in all my sinful choices? Um, Jude warns us against the same kind of th uh, thing in, in very strong language, uh, as we read in verse 4 of Jude. Certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have se secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. 
They pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality. They scratch people's itches by telling them that the grace of God means they can do whatever they want. Uh, and Jude goes on to describe how they also kind of scoff at the idea of judgment and, no, don't worry about that or it's not going to happen. And the effect of that is to deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. In other words, yes, Jesus will be your helper. He'll be your friend. He'll add something to your life. Uh, but let's not talk about him being the Lord and the king who tells us how to live and we have to obey. Now, of course, all of this can, sound, can be made to sound very positive and good and even biblical. Uh, it can be dressed up as love and inclusivity and mission. Uh, doesn't Jesus love and welcome all people? Uh, for example, in talking about the same-sex issue, uh, the arch, current Archbishop of York, second-ranking Anglican clergyman in our Anglican system, and he was, you would have seen him on TV if you watched the coronation. He had a couple of things, a couple of lines in there. Uh, he has said that we mustn't ignore the missiological damage to the church if the church says something is morally unacceptable when the rest of society says it is normal and good. We should listen to our culture and change how we read the Bible to avoid missiological damage. In other words, becoming the bad guys. But what about Jesus' call to repent of sin? Yes, he welcomes sinners, but what about the call to repent of sin? And surely there's a greater missiological damage in the church abandoning or twisting the Bible than in becoming unpopular. Um, if we're scratching people's itchy ears in the name of mission and sacrificing the Bible in the process, then sure, the world might dislike us a little bit less, but we'll be left without a gospel and we'll have destroyed ourselves in the process. And we're seeing that happen. Uh, once you start undermining what the Bible says, where do you stop? Um, your Bible is going to be full of red pen that you've put through everything that might sound a little bit silly or uncomfortable to you. And you'll have ended up crossing out the gospel as well because we're told the gospel sounds silly and uncomfortable to people. This is the pressure that comes when people will not put up with sound doctrine. So that is the continual threat. That's the pressure that we all feel as as Bible-believing Christians. So that's the continual threat. There is therefore a crucial task. Jude says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, it's going to be a very warm, positive letter, I felt compelled instead to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Uh, that means it's time to fight because this is important. It's battle stations for the people of God. We have to contend for the faith. And in 2 Timothy, Paul under, underlines the seriousness of that as he introduces what he says to Timothy in verse 1, chapter 4. He says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. He's saying there is a judgment coming, and we are going to have to face the judgment and give an account to God for our faithfulness to him. And everyone is going to have to face the judgment, which is why all of this matters so much. You've got to, we have to have a message that's going to help people when they face Jesus Christ, the judge. So what do we have to do? What are we being called upon to do? In verse 2, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. I said this to the other congregations last week, but um, Charles Spurgeon said 
that defending the Bible is a little bit like trying to defend a lion. You're much better off just letting it loose to defend itself. Uh, and our task in defending the Bible is to let the Bible loose. Preach the word, says Paul. That is, proclaim the word, make the word known. That's how you defend the Bible. Um, we heard a couple of uh, weeks ago that the scriptures are God-breathed. They are God's breathed out word, and that means we can be confident in their power. If you're confident in the power of God, then you should be confident in the power of the word that he's breathed out to do what he sent, sent, what he sent it to do. Uh, we often think that it's up to us to muster up clever arguments to support the Bible and convince people why the Bible is good, sort of like building scaffolding around a building to help hold it up. Paul's saying the Bible can stand by itself. Just tell people what it says. By all means, um, be clever in the way that you do it, be sensitive, be, um, uh, be wise, but the best defence is just to let the Bible speak because it can do that for itself. Let it speak to those within the church. Let it speak to those outside the church if they'll listen. Uh, the, Bible the, the Bible describes the word of God as a sword and a fire and a hammer and a storm. Uh, it has a lot of power in itself. Now, of course, lots of people are not going to like it. Uh, they won't put up with sound doctrine. Paul says, be prepared in season and out of season. In other words, sometimes it'll just feel like the right time to bring the message from the Bible. This is just what people need right now and it's going to feel really good. At other times, it's going to feel like it's not the right time and it's not going to work and it just isn't working and we're getting nowhere here. That's out of season. Paul says, preach the word then as well. Because this is what we just keep doing. We keep making the word known. We keep trying. Sure, we might change our method. Sure, we need to learn how to do it better all the time. But even if people are leaving our church or they're moving to the church down the road because it scratches their itches and tells them what they want to hear, uh, we keep doing what we're told to do, which is make the word known with great patience and with careful instruction. Uh, this is where the effort has to keep going into the preaching of the word. Now, obviously, this is relevant to ministers like Timothy, like me. Uh, this is where we need to put our effort but it's relevant to every Christian because we are all called to look after each other and to be witnesses to, to Jesus. Preaching the word, Paul says, involves correcting and rebuking and encouraging. And that includes one-to-one -one work and small group work as well as giving sermons. And we all need correction and rebuke and encouragement at times. I need my Christian brothers and sisters in love to apply God's word to me. Um, we all need this. Um, Jude urges God's people to contend for the faith. And as we read later on in verse 22, he says, Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. So there is personal work to be done here. There's endless amounts of personal work to be done within God's people as well as outside God's people, and we all need to be doing it. Uh, it's the work of mercy and salvation to those who are in doubt and in danger and in sin. And the tool that we use to do that work, to save others and to show them mercy, is the Bible. Preach the word. So the Bible's not some ornament that we lock away and we get it out and we parade it around on special occasions like the crown jewels. 
No, we defend the Bible by using it, by unleashing it, by letting it loose as the centre of everything that we do, uh, and then it defends itself. Next week, we're going to be uh, thinking about uh, the responsibilities of church leaders in the context of the Bible's authority. But here, I just want to underline the fact that the defence of the Bible is a shared responsibility. Um, at his coronation, King Charles was presented with a Bible by um, the head of the Church of Scotland and as part of the ceremony, and the words were, receive this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. And uh, he, then Prince Charles uh, promised to maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel and the Protestant reformed religion, and he was named Defender of the Faith. Uh, I hope I'm not being unkind, but we probably shouldn't rely on Charles to do it all for us. Um, and nor should we rely on ministers to do it all, and nor should we rely on just the keen people in the church to do it all. The Bible doesn't just call King Charles to be defender of the faith. He calls on all Christians to be defenders of the faith. And we all have a part to play, individually and collectively. Um, it's been relatively easy to be a Bible-believing Christian in Australia until fairly recently, and as we know, it's getting a bit harder. It's becoming more unpopular. And we all need to be ready to pay the price for our convictions and stand up as Bible people. Paul says to Timothy, but you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. That could be applied to all of us. Uh, the world is changing. In some ways, the church is panicking uh, and giving a lot away out of fear. But we all need to keep our heads. Sometimes things go really well, keep your head. Sometimes things go really badly, keep your head. And endure hardship. What else are we told to expect in the Bible in this life other than hardship as people of God? It's very clear. Do the work of an evangelist. Uh, when there's opportunity there, even if you don't call yourself an evangelist, even if you think, oh, I'm not an evangelist, it doesn't matter, do the work of an evangelist anyway. And faithfully discharge all the duties that God is giving to you to do, whatever they may be, whatever the part that God has given you to play, be faithful in discharging that duty. Mark chapter 8, uh, Jesus said, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Note those words, and for the gospel. It should be part of being a Christian to lose your life for the gospel. We're all called to be defenders of the biblical faith. We're all called to suffer where necessary and to lay down our lives, metaphorically, uh, I think, in most of our cases. And we defend the Bible by making its message known. Uh, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul refers to the church, God's household, as the pillar and foundation of the truth. Where do you find the solid truth in this world? world of change, a world of rebellion. The church is supposed to be standing firm, holding up the truth. When Paul said that, he just outlined the need for trustworthy ministers in the church, but he didn't just have the church hierarchy in mind when he called us the pillar and foundation of the truth. He referred to the church as God's people in God's household. So he's talking about kids 
and mums and dads and grandmothers and grandfathers and slaves and masters and Jews and Gentiles and all the random collection of people you get in a local church like this, this is the pillar and foundation of the truth, or it ought to be. Um, we all have a part in standing firm together in the truth of the Bible, in sound doctrine, uh, holding onto it, ministering it to one another, ministering it to the world around us. So that's what we need to aim for. Uh, and I'm going to lead us in prayer that God helps us to, uh, to do what we're told here. Loving Father, we thank you again for the treasure that we have in your word, that you have spoken and that you've caused it to be bound in a book for us to read that's so easily accessible to us. We thank you, Lord, that in this book are the words of life and we don't need anything else for salvation or relationship with you. So help us to treasure it, and in treasuring it, help us to defend it. Help us to preach the word to one another uh, and to the world around us. Help us to save one another and be merciful to one another and to encourage and correct and rebuke one another uh, because you've all given us a, a part to play in preaching the word, defending the word, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.